Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Pop Culture. I'm Gail Fashingbauer cooper the author of two pop culture books, Whatever Happened to Pudding Pops and The Totally Sweet 90s, both written with Brian Belmont. Today, we're talking to Doug Bradley and Craig Werner, the authors of We Gotta Get Out of This Place, the soundtrack of the Vietnam War. Doug and Craig, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Gail. Great to have you. Let's tell the audience a little bit about your backgrounds, if we can. Uh, Doug, can we start with you? Sure. I, I think uh, in relation to this book, Gail, I guess the, the best thing to know is that I'm a Vietnam vet. Uh, I was drafted into the Army um, after college. I had a student deferment uh, during the uh, early years of the war, uh, but I lost that after I graduated. And so in, uh, in 1969, uh, that fall, instead of starting law school, I passed my physical and got ready to go to into the service. I didn't go in until the following March, uh, but I spent uh, about five months at the uh, two months of basic training, five months at the Army Hometown News Center in Kansas City, and then 365 days in Vietnam in 1970 and 1971. Uh, since then, I've uh, I've had a career as a writing professional communicator with the University of Wisconsin. But in my uh, before I worked for the university, and then in my volunteer time. I've worked with uh, vets in a number of different ways and capacities, uh, really with the uh, the whole goal of trying to help Vietnam vets to get back home. Wonderful. And your experience gives your book kind of a special touch that I think it maybe wouldn't have had had you not been able to speak from first-person experiences in Vietnam. So that really adds to it, it seems. Thank you. Uh, Craig, can we move on to your background? Yeah, I grew up in Colorado Springs, which is a military town, and I played with a rock and roll band that played a lot for uh, GIs at Fort Carson particularly. And subsequently, uh, I spent uh, a year thinking I was going to be drafted and wasn't. It was the year that Nixon Vietnamized the war, turned the fighting over to the Vietnamese. Uh, Subsequently, I've become a cultural historian uh, focusing on the role of music in American culture. Great. And it says that your book came out of a conversation you had at a Christmas party around 2003. Doug, can you kind of explain how that came to be? Sure. Um, Craig and I, uh, we, we sort of knew about each other, but we really hadn't met. I knew more about him. Both my children attended the university and took these wonderful classes about, uh, that Craig offers uh, every semester on um that has music integrated into the the, the fabric of the uh, you know life of African Americans or the civil rights movement or the Vietnam War, so I knew about him and uh, Craig uh, was smart enough to start to tap some Vietnam vets to come into his class during that Vietnam unit and give the kids uh, a sense of a firsthand experience, you know, talking a little bit about the music, but really I think um, giving them the veterans' perspective that most of them wouldn't have had. So um, a group of those guys uh, sort of were connected with the, the vet center in Madison, Wisconsin, and they were having a Christmas party in uh, in 2004. And uh, I 
I had, I, because I'm a Vietnam vet and I did some work with the vet center. Um, I was invited. Craig was there. So I had to go over him and thank him for the great education for my kids. And next thing you knew, um, we were comparing notes. He had asked me if I knew, uh, you know, I'd seen his Vietnam soundtrack for the course. And I did. He asked me if my playlist would be any different. I said, yeah, because of when I was there. Um, and we started to compare notes. And the next thing we knew, there were a cluster of Vietnam vets around us mentioning their songs and volunteering uh, their own titles. And we sort of exchanged this look with each other, even though we just met. And it was sort of like, geez, there's something going on here. Um, so we decided to follow up after that. Um, Craig can take the story from there. Yeah, we met on the terrace at the University of Wisconsin and said that was extraordinary, the stories we got, because Vietnam vets are generally not real forthcoming about some of the things the guys were talking about. Uh, certainly helped it was at the vet center. But we thought, let's write a book about this. Uh, and originally we thought we were going to organize it around the top 20 Vietnam veterans. Songs. <laughs> right, right. And then we started talking to people. And it became very clear very quickly that it was going to be 200, 2,000, some much larger number than that. And uh, 10 or 11 years later, we just reached the point where we said, we have got to cut off the interviews and actually write the book. <laughs> And it is a wonderful book. I'd just like all the readers to know it's it's both educational and entertaining and poetic. Uh, you do a wonderful thing um, with first person essays that you call solos, uh, which is a really neat way to kind of break up the information and, and share these um, very personal stories, which is just wonderful. So congratulations on how it all came out. Thank you. Uh, the challenge for us in writing the book, and we went through several drafts on it, was to get ourselves out of the way and let the voices of the men and women who served in Vietnam carry it. And the solos were crucial to that. Some of those came when we talked to people who said, you know, I'd be happy to talk to you, but we'd really like, I'd really like to write my story for myself. And some of those that came in uh, were just extraordinary in their poetic, lyrical, the depth of them. And sometimes we did interviews with people that were wonderful interviews. And we said, we're really not going to add anything to this. So we transcribed and did a little editing. And then we all sent it back. The person said, add, subtract, uh, Jimmy, this like you want. But I think both of us would agree that those solos are the heart and soul of the book. They're wonderful. They're wonderful. And Doug, you write one about uh, betting on what the first song to be played in a musical marathon would be. Can you talk about that a little bit? It was one of those crazy things. Uh, one thing the military did for us, especially um, later in the war when we knew we were all eventually going to go home, Nixon had decided that we were going to turn the groundwater, uh, ground war over to the South Vietnamese and, and our troops were going to leave. And those of us who supported the guys in the field were going to go home, too. Um, you know, we they, they had to keep us engaged. So they gave us a lot of the creature comforts. And one of the things they gave us was music. And we had music um, all the time in the rear, especially not in the field, of course, but in the rear we did. And in uh, in a great variety and multitude, uh, Armed Forces Radio, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, cassette recorders, reel to reel tape decks, uh, you know, guys that played music in the hooch, uh, touring bands, uh, traveling acts, Bob Hope, you name it. And so... Um, you know, music was always in and around us. And it was Labor Day weekend in 1971. And that's sort of a joke because we're working all the time anyway. Nobody gets Labor Day weekend <laughs> off. But in order to make it feel like we were we were back home, the uh, DJs on AFVN were going to have a sort of a top 500 countdown. Uh, 
uh, starting midnight uh, Saturday, Friday night, Saturday morning and going until late Monday. And uh, so we were sitting around the hooch, those of us that weren't on guard duty or working at the office. And somebody decided, well, let's make this interesting and, and started to throw some money around saying what they thought the, who the first song would be by. And that this person thought it was Elvis. Somebody else said it was going to be Dylan. The next thing you know, we said, well, we can't spend our money anyway. So we started um, wagering ration cards, which were very important because that was your liquor and cigarettes and alcohol and beer for a month. And so this now we've got real stakes. <laughs> and um, <laughs> and somebody started to put odds up on the board and everybody got engaged. And, you know, they were talking about it's going to be Creedence. It's going to be Hendrix. It's going to be The Doors. It's going to be Motown. And we and it, it got very chaotic. And then at the stroke of midnight, the song that came on was we got to get out of this place. And we all sort of turned to one another and said, how the heck did we miss that? This is our anthem. This is the song we sing all the time. But in arguing about the music that, that we had sort of grown up with, we forgot where we were. And that's, that's our song. Right, right. It's a great song. I wish I had access to play it, but um, we, a little bit about it. it was originally written for the Righteous Brothers, and um, the songwriters thought of it more as a get out of the ghetto anthem. Right? Is that yeah, pretty pretty fair? Cynthia Wall um, and Barry Mann, who wrote it uh, for the Righteous Brothers, uh, their agent sent it to London, and the Animals manager found it, and they were coming down from their gritty working class industrial town to London, and they thought it was a story about them. Cynthia and Barry thought it was about uh, a get out of the ghetto song. And as soon as it got to the uh, guys in Vietnam, they made it theirs. Uh, Eric Burden told me a story about being near Fort Benning, Georgia, and three Green Berets came up to him. And he was, that was when there's a lot of tension with long hairs. He thought they were going to uh, kick his butt. And uh, mm-hmm. uh, they came up and said, thanks, man. That song's great. It really helped us get through. And subsequently, he's gotten Hundreds and hundreds of letters on that. Sure, sure, sure. And it's not the only song that was important to the soldiers, but really wasn't written about the war. It was written in an earlier time or with a different uh, subject in mind and kind of was transformed by, you know, time or experience. Um, Craig, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, one of the things that's striking is how songs that meant one kind of thing at home could mean something entirely different in Vietnam. I had a little bit of a sense of that having played or a band that played for GI audiences. So a song like Purple Haze, which was a drug song for most people at home, uh, if you know that Jimi Hendrix was a paratrooper, uh, a line like, excuse me, will I kiss the sky, means something different, that Purple Haze could refer to the smoke grenades. Uh, a song like Sitting on the Dock of the Bay by Otis Redding uh, had nothing to do with Vietnam, except that every lonely soldier staring out at the South China Sea uh, made it uh, their own. Uh, Nancy Sinatra's These Boots Are Made for Walking. Uh, if you're marching endless clicks uh, through the highlands or through the Mekong Delta, your boots become very important to you. And just literally on and on and on. Almost every song we hit uh, meant something different at home and something different in Vietnam. For sure, sure. And you talk about how it seems obvious, but there's they say if you've met one per- person who's a Vietnam met, you've met one person who's a Vietnam met. You can't, you know, extrapolate and say, well, I, I know everyone now. And of course, they were different. Their musical favorites were different. Um, but when the war started, 
it, you know, it might have been early, early 60s, but in a way, the music was maybe still hearkening back to the 50s, a different era, um, maybe an era that felt less, you know, morally uh, ambiguous or was kind of their father's music. Um, Doug, do you want to talk a little bit about well, I, the I, early I, songs I, I of the think, war? I think that's a great point you're, you're, you're making, Gail, because, you know, we were the sons of World War II veterans um, and our fathers uh, had basically saved the world you know, from fascism and um, had done it honorably and, and quietly. And uh, so when it became our time to serve for many of us, um, it was the, it was the, the thing to do that, that, you know, a young man in America did. You, you went up and you know, Elvis got drafted. Uh, you know, everybody could go in the army. So, you know, when we were called to serve, we were going to serve. And I, I think that was a bit of the mentality of that time. And you're, you're right. I think about the music when you, talk to guys like some of the gentlemen that we did who were there in the early stages, uh, even pre-Gulf of Tonkin as advisors, um, and then early on, right right after that, you get a sense of this is really more like Korea and post-World War II than it is Vietnam and the 60s. Uh, Pat Boone is playing on the loudspeakers at, uh, at bases in order to annoy the, uh, the, the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong. And, um, and a lot of that early music was sort of infused with that kind of ethos. Um, songs like Hello Vietnam and, and Distant Drums by Jim Reeves. There was a song by Loretta Lynn, um, Dave Dudley's music, even Chris Christopherson, who had a transformation later. But the music was very much about, you know, it wasn't sort of totally gung-ho. We got a little bit more of that later, but it was just like, hey, you know, we've got this threat over there. It's communism. It's going to come and, and conquer us. So it's time we took a stand and stood up and, and uh, and beat it back like we did Hitler and Hirohito. That was kind of the mentality, and it was reflected in the music. And one of those songs, of course, is Barry Sadler's Ballad of the Green Beret. Um, Craig, do you want to tell a little bit about that song, which was a huge hit, of course? Yeah, it was the number one record of 1966 uh, in the United States, which is a period when the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and the Temptations are at their absolute peak, but that was the most popular song. And in most ways, it is a World War II song. Uh, that the novel uh, by Robin Moore is a little bit murkier in terms of its uh, moral vision. It knew that Vietnam was a confusing mess in some ways. But John Wayne makes the movie, uh, The Green Beret, and it's basically a Western. I mean, it's, uh, it ends with the sun sinking slowly in the west. The problem is they're in the South China Sea. It's the wrong direction uh, for where the sun would be. So there's this <laughs> myth, and it was one that appealed to the World War II generation. Uh, the sound of it is has more in common with, I don't know, uh, uh, Tony Bennett's I Left My Heart in San Francisco, a song we heard a lot about uh, there, that it was tied in with earlier generation. The thing is, when we talked to vets about the Ballad of the Green Berets, many of them made it, it was part of their recruitment. It was uh, why they signed up. Uh, one of the guys, Wisconsin vets, it was like on Wisconsin. We were going to march down the field, win the war, and go home. But after he'd been there a while, he said, no, this is not what I'm seeing here. And he developed a very ironic and somewhat bitter attitude towards it. He said, this is a lie. This whole myth is a lie. And the other funny thing about Ballad of the Green Berets is every branch of the service had a parody version of it, making fun <laughs> of it. They said, ah, uh, yeah, no, 
We're not going to buy that, guys. We're pulling you out of trouble when you get into trouble. So really complicated story. Right, right. Right. Let's take a sidetrack a little bit and talk about how Vietnam soldiers heard music when they were over there. You mentioned a little bit about uh, Armed Forces Radio and Bob Hope and that kind of thing. But um, the radio is pretty interesting to me. Can we talk about that a little bit? Well, yeah. And I, I think um, we, we, we mentioned that a little. And I, I really want to stick to the point. And there was a great book by a woman named Meredith Lair, L-A-I-R. It's called Armed with Abundance. And what she points out is that the uh, the army really they, they sort of knew uh, the military had a, a sense of what this new generation was like. It was going to be a little more challenging, a little more difficult, especially uh, the longer the war went on and the less the objective seemed attainable. And so um, they would arm us with abundance. And that's how we had access to uh, a lot of the things we did that we could buy in a pay, what we called the PaySex catalog or, or uh, you know, uh, at the base there at the PX. And um, music was one of those things. They they knew we coveted it. It was important to us. It sort of identified us. We were the rock and roll generation. And as I said, we could get records. We could get cassettes. We could get real real tapes. We had pirate radio. I mean, there's a there's some great stuff in the book about um, the way that soldiers themselves would go on some of the restricted bands on the radio frequency that would be left for distress calls or what have you. And and there was a guy named Dave Rabbit who had an underground radio show. Uh, the point being that uh, unless you're out in the field and if you're out there, you know, silence is what you need to protect you and your buddies. Um, sometimes when uh, you're you're rotating out, you might hear Hanoi Hannah, who is piping mm-hmm. her own tunes and talking to the soldiers directly. Um, but uh, if you're not in the field and in those kind of situations, you are having access to and listening to and maybe even seeing music um, and some of the best music there was and performed sometimes by the very artists themselves, Nancy Sinatra's in Vietnam, James Brown, Johnny Cash, but often um, with great sound systems and, and good versions. Great. And can you tell some of our younger listeners, uh, you mentioned Hanoi Hannah, they may not know what that refers to. I, that's uh, Hanoi Hannah is, is very, is much like Tokyo Rose was in World War II, she was a exactly. North Vietnamese woman who was on the airwaves and they found a way to broadcast and, and get their signal to our soldiers. And we had, we had some African-American veterans tell us that they didn't, they didn't hear over AFVN about the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King. They heard it first from Hanoi Hannah. Um, so she was, uh, She's pretty renowned um, and and not well liked in many quarters, but mm-hmm. she played great music, which was the interesting thing. And sometimes she would talk directly to soldiers, saying, "Why are you doing this?" I mean, it was it was sort of this counter kind of mental uh, uh, brainwashing they were trying to do, and that was trying to sort of break the will of the soldiers. Sure, sure, I understand. They still in the Middle East, we've heard of a similar one where. They get the pop culture so confused and say things like, soldiers, your wives are sleeping with Bart Simpson, thinking that's a person or something. Well, it's funny you mentioned that, Gil, because we had things about Hanoi Hannah um, and, and some of the music they played at the Hanoi Hilton to the POWs. And they thought that some of the songs that there's a, an anecdote in the book about a hard day's night that they thought was some kind of protest song. Um, and had no under, idea of what that meant. And so some of the music sometimes, as you just pointed out with the middies, they would play it and yet they wouldn't understand what the song was 
saying to or doing for the POWs. Right. Going the wrong way. Um, moving on, one of the bands that comes up a lot in your in your book is uh, Creedence Clearwater Revival, of course. Um, John Fogarty was in the reserves, and the CCR songs often had a connection to the service. There was Run Through the Jungle, Bad Moon Rising, Proud Mary, Fortunate Son. Can we talk about Creedence a little bit? I think so many people still love them to this day. Yeah. Uh, the Creedence Clearwater was as close to the center of the Vietnam soundtrack across groups, across blacks, whites, uh, officers, uh, grunts, uh, as anybody. Uh, part of that was that John Fogarty, the lead guitarist, songwriter, um, singer, uh, had been in the National Guard. Doug Clifford, the drummer, had been uh, in the service uh, during Vietnam era. Neither one of them went to Vietnam, but they identified very closely with the guys. And there was something just archetypal about Credence's sound. Uh, the band I played with got booked into a black club uh, one time, and we were not really capable of playing soul music. We got through that night by playing Credence, that the uh, African-American soldiers uh, loved it, the Chicano soldiers uh, loved it. And their songs that seem like they're about Vietnam run through the jungle. Uh, I wrote an oral history of Credence Clearwater, and John Fergley said that wasn't about Vietnam. That was about violence in the United States, whereas a sound like, song like Proud Mary uh, was a song that he wrote directly out of his service experience, specifically when he got his discharge. Everything Credence did spoke to the GIs, and they really made the point of saying that we are both anti-war and pro-veteran. That's not a contradiction, and the soldiers got that and appreciated that. Right. And we mentioned race and music a little bit. It I mean, did a lot of the African-American soldiers come in with different musical tastes uh, than some of the white soldiers or? Yeah, that it was a time in which the short answer is yes. And then the broader answer is it was a moment in American musical history where black and white music were really speaking to each other in a way that's been rare uh, ever since uh, that the white soldiers knew the soul, the soul music. <laughs> Uh, a lot of the black soldiers knew uh, the music of the rock and roll bands, uh, and there were exceptions to that. But sometimes, particularly when it was at base uh, exchanges where there were uh, jukeboxes and there were lifers, there were uh, senior men who ran the PXs, who were from the South. A lot of them were from the South. A lot of them were country music fans. They were a little older, and they were not part of that culture. So sometimes music could become a touchstone for tension, and fights could break out over it. But at other times, it could help heal and make connections across racial divides. Sure, sure. And that kind of leads to Jimi Hendrix a little bit, maybe. Uh, can we talk a little bit about Hendrix's music in Vietnam? Sure. Not sure Doug's with us. Is he still on? You know, I heard a, a disconnection. I wonder if we lost him. Yeah, his, his um, picture vanished, too. Do you want to take hmm. him back, or should I? Uh, yeah, why don't we just go on for now, and if we can get him back, we'll try okay. to get him back. Sounds good. Jimi Hendrix was immensely important in Vietnam. Part of that is because he had been in the service, but part of it was just because his music sounded like Vietnam. Uh, he could make his uh, guitar sound like helicopter blades coming in. Uh, the Star Spangled Banner he did at Woodstock 
and takes military songs, Star Spangled Banner, taps and turns them into explosions, almost literally. He did a song called Machine Gun that was the sound of the machine gun. And uh, Hendrix really connected deeply with just about everybody uh, who was in uh, Vietnam. Um, it's interesting that he spoke equally to black and white veterans, whereas on the home front, his audiences tended to be majority white. Uh, that frustrated him a little bit. He wanted to reach out and was actively working to do that at the end of his life. But, uh, man, uh, as deeply as anybody, Hendrix, Credence, uh, Aretha Franklin, there's a small number who come up again and again, nobody more frequently than Hendrix. Right, right. Um, we're going to move on to Country Joe McDonald, who has gives your book just a beautiful uh, referral and, and great quote on the back of the cover and wrote a nice uh, solo essay. Do you want to talk a little bit about Country Joe's importance to the war and to the soldiers was? We owe a lot to Country Joe. Uh, uh, he connected us with uh, many of the veterans we talked to, particularly those on the West Coast. And it was uh, a network that led us to. A lot of Chicano veterans uh, in uh, East Los Angeles, particularly. Uh, but when we met Joe at the uh, BART station in Berkeley, the first thing that he said is, I consider myself a veteran first and a hippie second. And weirdly enough, until we started working on this book, I had not realized that Country Joe McDonald had been in the service. Little before Vietnam, he's in the Navy. But he sure got it, and he had been active with vets going to and coming back from Vietnam very early uh, in the war. And when Joe wrote, I feel like I'm fixing to die, which has the line, be the first one on your block to have your boy come home in a box, a lot of people in the United States thought it was irreverent, thought it was unpatriotic. And to this day, Joe McDonald gets hate mail uh, for that song. But the fact is that he was writing it from an inside position. It was military humor. When you're sure, out sure. in those situations, it's laughing to keep from crying. And we did not interview a single veteran who complained about, I feel like I'm fixing to die. We had some very pro-war people, uh, Green, Bay, uh, Green Beret Colonel, who we talked to, would have his guys sing it when they were out uh, in the field. And um, it just resonated very, very deeply uh, with the soldiers. And this is the song, uh, if I can remember it correctly, it's uh, one, two, three, what are we fighting for? Yeah. Is, is And then it kind of does it almost like a countdown, very cheery. And in, um, well, he's also, yeah. right, right, yeah. And he also has a famous uh, cheer. I guess it was originally they were cheering fish. Was that how yes. they would? Yes. So Country Joe and the Fish, they were spelling out fish, but then that, that got a little changed. Do you want to talk about that? Changed. I'm not sure what I can say on a podcast. but Well, it's a pretty famous word, four-letter. They, they turned it into the most famous four-letter word beginning with F and led a uh, call and response, a football game cheer, basically, uh, at Woodstock with it and then went into it. Interestingly enough, the song had been written uh, several years before Woodstock for an anti-war musical in Berkeley. Uh, the record label wouldn't put it on an album. It wasn't until Woodstock made it popular that they said, oh, I guess people do like that. They do want right. to hear that. And uh, so it came out. But, yeah, just that it sounds like carnival music. You know, it's right, uh, right. and it ends the uh, on the album with the sound of uh, helicopter and gunfire. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. 
Uh, yeah. And on the Woodstock tape, I think is when he uh, he kind of teases the audience and says, you know, there's 300,000 out there and you're not singing. Start singing along. And then yeah. they just jump right in and everybody knows the words. Yeah, so exactly. Uh, yep. Became a sing along with Mitch kind of thing. Exactly. <laughs> uh, you talk in the book and you mentioned earlier uh, how it intentionally originally you had thought maybe a top 20 songs. And, you know, that was blown out of the water when you realized how many songs there were and how, you know, getting a top 20 consensus maybe wouldn't work. But you kind of do it in the end of the book. You kind of make that same list. Can, can you talk about that? We do. Yeah, uh, it's a party game. Uh, it's a conversation starter. People like it. Uh, we discovered doing uh, public events that uh, trying to figure out how to get all of the music in, we could do a top 20 and people laughed about it uh, and whatnot. But there's some things that really are revealing about the songs. We adjusted it to reflect more or less those that came up most frequently or with most depth. The thing that surprised us about that was that many of the songs that are on the kind of mythical Vietnam soundtrack that we get from the movies and the documentaries were not all that important to the soldiers. They heard them, they liked some of them, but what really mattered to them and what shows up a lot on the top 20 that's in the book are songs like My Girl by The Temptations. And right behind We Gotta Get Out of This Place and Maybe I Feel Like I'm Fixing to Die, the song we heard about most frequently that neither Doug nor I had on our original list was Leaving on a Jet Plane by Peter, Paul, and Mary. And mm-hmm. once you think about it, of course, and when we've done some public events, we did a, uh event called LZ Lambo, where the Green Bay Packers, the Oneida Indian Nation, uh, Wisconsin Public Television, sponsored a homecoming event for Vietnam vets. And uh, when we played Leaving on a Jet Plane for the very large crowd there, a lot of the wives and a lot of the husbands broke down, and that happens a lot. And that, in many ways, is the center, emotionally, spiritually, of the real Top 20. Right. It's right. a beautiful, beautiful song. song. It is. Um, one that made your list that was a surprise to me because of when it come out, came out was uh, Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA. And people might say that's an odd choice for the Top 20. Can you talk about that a little? Yeah. Um, that it's not an odd choice to most Vietnam veterans because they're very much aware of Springsteen's commitment to and importance to the Vietnam vet community. Uh, First of all, the song is written literally about a Vietnam veteran, uh, written for Bobby Muller, who has a solo uh, in uh, the book, who uh, was a very gung-ho vet who was then paralyzed in Vietnam, became very active with Vietnam vets against the war. But Springsteen, at the time when America was doing its best not to think about Vietnam, Springsteen, in many ways, brought it back onto the radar. Uh, He gave a lot of money to Vietnam veterans of America. They wouldn't have survived without him. But more than that, he made people talk about it. He made people think about it and made a lot of Vietnam vets feel like it was okay to be a Vietnam vet. And uh, born in the USA, part of that is just to acknowledge that the music about Vietnam has been made after the war ended. And part of it is to acknowledge Springsteen's importance. Sure. Sure. And it is a beautiful song. talks about fighting the Viet Cong and going down to see my VA man. It's very specifically about a Vietnam veteran. Right. Yeah, you got it. Exactly. Um, and another song that uh, we mentioned a little bit earlier, but I'd like to bring up again is Nancy Sinatra and these boots are made for walking. 
uh, yeah, I mean, as you said earlier, the boots of a military soldier are very important. They're they're going to get you through those clicks and and those patrols. Uh, but the song itself is is you know it's upbeat and fun and yeah, and a little bit aggressive too. You know? A little bit. It's a, it's a fight song. You know, these boots are going right. to walk all over you, and it sure didn't hurt that Nancy Sinatra went to Vietnam, that she was good looking, that she wore. Yep high purple boots and short skirts, and they actually sent stickers of Nancy in her uh, boots and her miniskirt to Vietnam. Uh, and we've talked to several guys who uh, put them on their rifle stock and things like that. <laughs> and she has remained very closely involved with Vietnam veterans, uh, done a lot of reunions, uh, and up there with Springsteen amongst the most beloved singers uh, for the Vietnam vet community. Very nice. And there's a beautiful one of your solo essays about the Simon and Garfunkel song, Bridge Over Troubled Water, um, I Will Lay Me Down. Such beautiful lyrics. Um, you want to talk a little bit about that song? Yeah. It's so gentle compared to some of the other ones. Yeah. Uh, and Simon and Garfunkel uh, come up a lot. A song like Homeward Bound earlier uh, in their career. Any song about going home. Uh, Sloop John B., I Want to Go Home. Uh, Bobby Bear's Detroit City, written about an auto worker in Detroit. But I want to go home. I want to go home. Um, but um with um with a bridge over troubled water uh we had one of the vets uh we talked to for a long time was very articulate about the music just talked about how that song just wrung out his heart uh talked to one guy who was remembered standing on the tarmac going to what they called the freedom bird the um uh the airplane that would take him out of vietnam and having that song in his head and uh for the solo, it's about how deeply that song reactivates his memories of Vietnam, his thoughts about the suffering, about friends who didn't make it, uh, just a heartbreaking song. But that healing energy is a part of what music brings to the vets. Sure. sure. Simon and Garfunkel's songs have that power because after 9-1-1, I remember the boxer was kind of an anthem of New York getting back on its feet. You know, every glove that laid him down or cut him till he cried out and they played that in Saturday Night Live and it was a very touching moment after after that tragedy. And a lot so. of vets think that song's about a Vietnam vet on yeah. New York City. It's not explicit, yeah. but I can sure say it. Right. Um, we talked a little bit about uh, AFVN, the radio. We talked a little bit about Hanai Hanna, but one thing that a lot of younger generations may think of when they think of music in Vietnam is the late Robin Williams when he played the DJ Adrian Cronauer in Good Morning Vietnam, the movie. Um, but, you know, they may be surprised it was not a biography. It was Robin Williams playing Robin Williams. Um, can you talk a little bit about Cronauer and the real man? Absolutely. Uh, the music to that movie is actually reasonably authentic. Uh, of the Vietnam movies, it probably grades out at the top in terms of playing songs that were actually there. But when uh, we tried to get in touch with Adrian Cronauer to talk to him uh, about it, because we're based in Madison, Wisconsin, uh, he came to the conclusion that we must be uh, radical hippies or left-wingers of some sort, and he wouldn't talk to us uh, because he said uh, later on, he's on record. We had access to a lot of interviews, so we were able to incorporate uh, his story into the book. But um, he was a Reagan Republican. Uh, he was a, a pretty right-wing uh, kind of guy, uh, and he doesn't like being confused with Robin Williams in the least. Um, and at the same time, uh, uh, he was very important in Vietnam and actually did a lot of the things uh, that are in the movie. Interesting. Interesting. 
And of course, since Vietnam, we found ourselves in different wars in the Middle East and so on. And have you spoken at all with any of the younger veterans of those wars about their music or maybe how it differs from the Vietnam music? We have. Uh, Doug and I teach a uh, course on the Vietnam era at the University of Wisconsin. And our teaching assistants in that class are two veterans of the younger war, uh, of the more recent wars. One, a uh, black Marine from Brooklyn, one a white Marine from uh, Minneapolis. And uh, when we started talking with them, Uh, They said, well, there's a big, big difference. And the big one is that uh, we all have our own music in these wars. We have our iTunes. We have our headphones. And so when we go home at night, uh, we can, or back to the hooch at night, we can listen to whatever music we want. And that means there's not the shared experience that there was in Vietnam. There are songs that a lot of the younger vets know. System of a Down uh, is a group that comes up uh, a lot. Uh, but uh, interestingly enough, and we have a lot of contact with uh, younger veterans here, uh, the music that tends to bring them together is the music of the Vietnam era. They love mm. Creedence. They love Hendrix. It continues to speak to their experiences uh, in the service. So there will never be a book like ours about the music of this war. There'll be a really interesting book about pop culture. In this sure. Sure. Yeah. Um, Well, it, it looks like Doug tried to call back in and I, I don't know, I couldn't make the connection. So I think we may have to leave him. But is there anything you'd like to add that we haven't talked about or mentioned from the book? Well, or? The other thing that's important in the book is the final chapter, which is about the role of music in the lives of veterans once they returned to the world. Once they came back to the United States, they called it coming back to the world. Um, and there are two parts to that. One is that we talk to a fair number of soldiers who make music, who sing, who write songs uh, in a lot of different modes, from jazz violinist Billy Bang to a lot of folk singers. But we also talked to vets for whom they found a record that spoke to them about their experience. We talked to a couple of guys about the Beatles' White Album. They came back and they felt like that was speaking to them, uh, about the chaos, the confusion, happiness is a warm gun. Uh, some things like that. But above all else, Marvin Gaye's What's Going On. It was an album that Marvin made after he had spoken to his brother Frankie, who had served in Vietnam. Didn't know Marvin was reading his letters, but he was. And Marvin talked to Frankie, but he said, look, I'm not a politician. I can't change what's going on. I'm an artist. I can make music about it. And if you listen to the What's Going On album, it is almost like a book of short stories. Each song is about a different aspect of a veteran's experience coming back to the United States. And Art Flowers, an African-American vet uh, who wrote a great book called The Mojo Blues, said that when he came back, he was just wasting his life. He was getting high. He was drinking. He was chasing women. And one day he was at a uh, woman's dorm room at the University of Tennessee, and What's going on came on, and he said at that moment he knew that he had a mission in the world and that he was going to become a warrior for human freedom, black people, but all humanity, as he says. And so music played a big role in helping people survive and ultimately, for those who did make it back, heal the wounds. Right. 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 That's great. great. And, and 
Are you going to collaborate again on any more books or are you thinking about new projects or what's going on with you now? Um, Doug is writing a book about the role of music in his life, uh, tentatively titled The Tracks of My Years. Some of it's about Vietnam, but it's a lot about uh, his growing up uh, in Philadelphia and his uh, being shaped by that era, the role of going to Vietnam, coming back, uh, becoming a father, becoming a part of a family. Um, And I'm writing a book about the 1960s, that there are a million books, million good books about every aspect of the 60s. When I was teaching a class on the 60s a couple years ago, I realized there's no single reasonably sized book I can assign my students that covers the 60s as a whole. And at that point, I said, might as well write it. (laughs) That's a big project. I'd love to see that when it's done. It is. (laughs) Yeah. Well, thank you so much. The book is We Gotta Get Out of This Place, The Soundtrack of the Vietnam War by Doug Bradley and Craig Werner. It's wonderful. Pick it up for yourself. Pick up a copy for someone who was touched by Vietnam, was touched by 60s music, or wants to understand this important time in our nation's history. Thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thank you, man. You bet. Bye-bye.